It's time to wake up to Tequila Sunrise. Greg White here, and I have spent my career starting, leading, deploying, and investing in supply chain tech. So we take a shot and talk founders, execs, investors, and companies in this hot industry. If you want a taste of how tech startup growth and investment is done, join me for another blinding Tequila Sunrise. Hey. Hey. Welcome, everybody. Hey there. Robin, Greg, and Balaji Gopinath, our usual judges. We're going to turn the tables a little bit. This is our Summer Splash edition of Tequila Sunrise Take Your Shot. So usually what we do is we introduce you to some startups and we let them pitch. If you remember our epic, epic show from last month, we went almost two hours. We're going to try and keep it a little bit shorter. But look, this is your opportunity to watch companies pitch and talk about their companies and share their vision with the marketplace and learn from our judges. So we highlight these founders and we get insights from our judges. And of course, this is a part of our collaboration between Kubera Venture Capital, Link Labs, our little uh, supply chain focused incubator. And we're about to land here in the ATL there. And of course, Supply Chain Now, Thank you for uh, giving us this platform and allowing us to focus on these supply chain techs. Now, look, this is a really special show this time because we're turning the tables a little bit. So Robin, who's usually usually on the judge side, she gets to judge people and observe. She's going to share a bit about, about her experience in going through a race. So what we've done in the past, if you haven't joined us before, is we've watched founders do their pitch three minutes or less. And then we as a panel have evaluated their pitch, asked them questions, given them guidance on uh, some opportunities within their business. But the culmination of what we're trying to teach people with this show is to raise funds and to be able to build a good business to do so and to expand that business. So guess what? Robin had to jump off the last take your shot because she was in the middle of a raise and just raised $30 million for RoadSync, the company of which she is CEO, a supply chain payments, FinTech. She hit all the keywords and uh, <laughs> that probably made it easier, easier to raise. So, but she just completed this raise. She's actually about a month into making good use of those funds, being a good steward of the investor's money. And so we're going to learn what that process was like for her, what the market is like in general, and what is going on at RoadSync since this next stage of growth. So again, Balaji will share, if you can call us judges, Robin, I guess it will be me and Balaji this time, but mostly let's just consider this kind of a fireside chat. Uh, but welcome to both of you, and I'm, I'm glad to have you here. It's going to be fun being on, being yeah, on this. So at some point, we have to all do the tequila shot. Yeah, that's right. Do you have one handy, Balaji? I, you know, I don't, but that's also a bit early in the morning for me to start the that's day. That's true. I also think it might be illegal to do it live, FCC regulations and all that sort of thing. I don't know. Oh, who's to say it's tequila? Who could find it? Who could find us anyway? So, how many people insist on doing the shot on the show? There's a few that I thought were maybe a little bit too blue blooded to do it, and they actually insisted on doing the shot. Robin, are you ready? Yeah, I mean, who knows what's in my tea class? 
conversation will get really interesting if, if I went that direction. Yeah, but, but before we get going, Robin, huge congrats on the race. Yeah. It's always difficult regardless of the climate, and yeah. it takes a lot of work, becomes a full-time job for many CEOs as those who are in the process of raising know and those who have raised always know. So huge kudos to you and the team to be able to get that done. Yeah. Great. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, and I, I can't wait to hear because uh, you and I had the opportunity to talk just a little bit preparing for this and it, gosh, it brought back memories, good memories, but um, it, you know, I know it's, it's a heck of a workout. All right. Before we get started here, let's see who's joining us. Uh, so we still, <laughs> we have people from all over the world joining us. So thank you, Manish Srinivas, of course, from India. Always good to see you. And I have to quote Scott Luton, Peter Bolay, all night and all day from uh, Quebec. See, oh, another Peter, Peter, Peter Mathella. And Scott Luton, who's taking the afternoon off, right? So he is just observing right now. We have folks tuning in. Samuel from, from Panama, uh, Monday from Nigeria. You guys, we better be good. This is a worldwide audience. I'm not not saying anything in particular, no pressure, but uh, we've got Kenya, we've got Pakistan, I'm sober from Pakistan. So, all right, so let's jump into it. So I appreciate you doing this, Robin. I know this is just the start of things. I think a lot of times people think that, that the hard work culminates when, when you get funding, but the truth is now you, you have a certain responsibility to your investors as if you didn't before, but now even a longer list of investors. So we know that the work is hard and, and that you're taking some valuable time for us. So let's start with something just really basic. And that is, I think that the question we'd all like answered every time we are pitching or we see somebody pitching or someone has pitched successfully. And that is what did the investors see in your business, what did your pitch or your discussions with them communicate that they loved so much that they just had to invest here? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, just to share with people what we do. So <laughs> we're, we're in the business of um, automating the routine business expenses that truckers face to complete their loads. Um, and okay. we believe once we've done that, it'll actually create a <laughs> platform and opportunity to provide a broad set of financial solutions to the vendors that serve the transportation industry, to the truckers themselves, and then to the people employing them. And so that's really what our platform is, is about. But you know, where we have started is by automating expenses and making it easier to get paid and pay. Um, for things that drivers encounter uh, in the course of their load. So, you know, it could be anything from a warehouse unloading fee, a late fee to a uh, heavy truck repair, towing, you name it. For drivers, everything's a business trip. And, uh, but unlike us, when we go on business trips, uh, they can't use Amex to pay for a flight or a hotel. Um, they rarely have a bunch of other, other things that they pay for that may or may not accept cards. They may or may not have the funds readily available. And it just makes it very, very complicated in the industry. So, so that's really what our platform is focused on. A bunch of other industries have spend management solutions. The transportation industry really doesn't. And, and so that's really our aspiration is to, to power those expenses and make them easier. And then, you know, like I said, there's lots of other financial transactions that can be automated in the ecosystem as well. 
And you're aiming for some of those as well, right? We are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason to stop at, at you know, at just the at business expenses. I mean, it's can you can start to once you serve those, you can start providing some other financial solutions on so, top so, of that. So, so given that, Robin, I'm just kind of curious as to going to the investor question. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you lean more positioning yourself as a fintech company or a logistics company or is a fintech place serving logistics? Yeah, so uh, the cat the category that's really hot right now is embedded payments or vertically specialized software that have payments embedded in them, and mm. so you see in other uh, industries people like Toast. So Toast, if folks aren't familiar with that, is a started as a restaurant point of sale system, and they now provide a suite of solutions to run a restaurant. And they all started with the, with a point of sale that was purpose built for restaurants. They, I think, they filed for their IPO and they managed to build a giant business in the space. So that's sort of an example of sort of vertically specialized software with payments embedded in it. And that was the category that we sort of positioned ourselves as. So we didn't necessarily say, "Hey, we're you know we're about you know we're looking for logistics investors." Certainly made it easier to talk to people who understood logistics because you just spend forever describing the problem and the ecosystem and the complexities and even the the lingo gets really painful if people don't have any exposure to logistics whatsoever. Um, but that, so I, I would say we, we position ourselves as, as, you know, mainly FinTech with the software vertical specific software wrapped around it. Got it. So when you, so as you presented this, what do you think really hooked the investors? I mean, I see a lot of companies, trying to approach a business solution for the transportation industry. But it seems like payments, getting paid, is a great entree for that and then building out from there. I mean, is that or something else what? Yes. Well, so the the nice thing is um, payments, and the reason why payment sort of software anchored to payments or other financial solutions is so, you know, impactful and so interesting to investors is because, people really care about how they get paid, right? And so, you know, how you're taking in your money is a high engagement piece of, and sticky piece of what you do as a business. And so if you're really providing a person with solutions to get paid faster, to get paid easier, to track their revenue, you know, you really can make the argument to an investor that that is a good anchor point and platform mm-hmm. to deploy other solutions because they're using it every day. And that's really what people want to see is that, you know, you are, especially if you're going to go for a platform play where you're going to try to deploy multiple solutions, you, they really have to believe that you are important enough to your customer that they're going to want to do more with you. And, you know, the way you, part of the reason you do that is you say, hey, we, they're, they're using this every day. This is how they get paid and it's really sticky. So I think it's an important part. So, so Robin, just again, just a little more on the fintech side of things. I know you have a great background in that space. Mm -hmm. How much of this is partner-driven relationships that you brought to the table? And how much of it did you bespoke build as part of RoadSync that provided that unique offering to the market? Yeah, I mean, most of it is is very unique. Um, I, we publicly announced that we are partnered with Wex relatively recently, who is has fifty percent of the over the road fuel card market. We accept their fuel cards at all of our merchant locations and instantly accept their fleet checks. So that was a really important partnership for us. I think the fact that I'd come out of the fuel card industry was helpful in being able to land that. And you know, they don't easily partner with 
other platforms. And so, you know, I think having credibility in a relationship was was important to do things like that. But a lot of what we've built is very, um, it's very custom uh, because there really isn't, there's not, it's not, you know, even integrating with someone like EFR or WEX, it's not, it's, it's not like integrating with Stripe or sure. something that's sort of more off the shelf. I mean, this isn't something they're doing every day by a long shot. And so, so you've got to understand and, yeah. and build a lot of custom and, stuff. And, and, and that goes back to uh, something that Greg and I always talk about. The moat that a company has as they're going through the fundraise yep. and is evaluated by investors, that's a significant moat right? yeah. that in terms of other people be able to enter the market and how you're tightly integrated to an existing player all those really help a lot in the fundraise. And, and I think you've done that very, very well, right? Because yep. it, it yep. Uh, gives you a huge head start in terms of how you look at things versus other companies who, to your point, think they can build these things by integration with Stripe and all these other players. And frankly, that's that's easy to do and, and not a huge barrier to entry. Yeah, I mean, I think there was, there was two interesting things to investors about that relationship specifically, which is one, it's hard. It was hard to do and it was hard for us to, you know, both get it done um, sort of from a, a build standpoint, as well as just, you know, navigating that organization and, and sort of getting them to be a partner with us, uh, be a partner with us, so a gigantic company, but also the credibility it brings, right? I mean, they their brand name is everywhere in, in the, in the industry. And um, that's helpful when you, you know, frankly, I think the transportation industry is quite skeptical of new technology and new players. And so kind of having some folks to, to sort of. How do you get that them. impression, Robin? Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is, is that true, Greg? I, I mean, they, they, they I've really never heard that. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that they, our general approach, and I think this is something that resonated with investors as well, has been, you know, we have to be very respectful of where our customers are. Like, right. there's reasons that this industry has not been able to completely undergo digital transformation. And um, it's not because they're not sophisticated or savvy business people, right? And there's just other fish to fry. And so, you know, to the extent that we are respectful, work within their existing business processes, work within their existing workflow, just makes it a lot more palatable. And that, that positioning, I think, was really interesting to, to investors. So you've said three things so far. I hope I can remember them all. Mm -hmm. Have really nailed it that I think every company needs to think about. One is stickiness, right? We use that term all the time. Being used every day, and especially for something as core as payments, is a cr critical waypoint. I see a lot of companies who go at different angles of the company and then want to add payments later, and they do it via a generic solution like a Stripe or something like that. But you have actually positioned yourself to become the de facto, potentially, payments solution for the industry, especially with the, your connection to WEX. The other, the second is the integrations, right? Integrations aren't typically a strong suit. They're not typically a motor differentiator, but the integration that you have with such an exclusive player who has such exclusive taste with who they partner with, that is a huge leg up. That's m much more important than, again, as you talked about with um, Stripe or something like that. And then the last is meeting your customers. This is not the last I'm sure we'll hear, but the three that I've heard so far, the last is meeting your customers where they are solving the problem that they want solved, not projecting the problem that you want to solve, right? Don't be a hammer in search of a nail. We say that all of the time, but instead find what the market need is, what is a compelling 
problem that they are running fast away from and be the best and separate and differentiate yourself in that that position in the market and that's how you win so yeah i i think you know you even simpler put i mean the thing i think we also talk about a lot is revenue solves a lot of problems hmm. if you're helping people find revenue and that in and of itself is a huge value prop to the market and and we see a lot of efficiency plays see a lot of people addressing it from that standpoint and all that is valuable but the fact that you're bringing revenue to the table is huge yeah no doubt so was there anything as you pitched that investors expressed concerns around? I mean, the market or your position in it or anything like that? I mean, it can't have been all roses and daffodils, right? It was definitely not roses and daffodils. You know, just to share with folks, uh, this is the third round of capital I raised for the company. So I've done a seed round, a series A round, and then this was the most, or this was our series B. And I had really different experiences each and every time. Hmm. And so I learned a lot. Hopefully, you know, I did not, I May have made this same mistake more than once, but tried not to. I, I think that the hardest part, and this has been consistent through all three rounds, is to make sure that people understand, one, understand the market. So the lingo, the structure, the problems that they have. If, if this is not an active investor in, in supply chain or logistics type of, of, of technology, it's super duper hard. Um, it just it doesn't make a lot of sense to people. I think the second thing that was difficult was the way we go to market is primarily through direct sales. And man, investors don't like that. I mean, they don't like hand-to-hand -hand combat. They are like, what do you mean you have sales reps call everybody? And you know, don't and, and we're like, hey, this is not a market that has time to sit around and Google stuff, especially if you're kind of defining a new category and a new set of, of a new service. And you know, I think part of that's on us that we need to sort of start to figure out more digital ways to reach our customers. And we're certainly on that path. But those are probably the two biggest things. So just how we sell and then just understanding structurally the market and the problems and the lingo, I think, were the two biggest challenges that I've, I've faced every single time I've raised money. So, so two, two questions to follow on, Robin. And then one is I always get asked, how many investors did I talk to? It'd be great to to kind of give the audience a gauge of the fact that, you know, it's not all daffodils and roses here. Yeah. You're talking to a lots of people right. before you actually find uh, the people that get you and kind of grok what you're doing. How many investors do you think you've talked to in the, in the three rounds you've helped raise? Oh, geez. Across the three, three rounds, probably like 150 to 200. I think in my seed round, I talked to just under 100. And that was by far the hardest. I mean, for most people, that's the case. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for this last round, we did not talk to very many at all. It went, yeah. we got, we got lucky this time and I won't say we got lucky, but we had a very tight, compelling story and it went faster this time around. So, so we did not talk to that many people. So I mean, key, key point to all the early stage startups, say don't be dejected. It takes a lot of kissing frogs to find the right partners, investment partners to kind of work with and, and, and you have to remember that many investors want to say yes. They, everybody wants you to win. Yeah. But everything has to be aligned with what they know, what they invest in, how they can help, as well as timing, uh, yeah. which is which is key. Uh, second question, I think, which would be great for people. Well, I actually want to say something else about that. The other thing I think I got smarter about is learning to <laughs> identify genuine interest. So you said something interesting. Investors' job is to look at deals. So that's their job and their job is to like consider that deal until they've 
really pretty sure they don't aren't interested. Also to learn about the market. I mean, they could have all sorts of objectives in terms of having a conversation with you. And it feels like Gen genuine interest, right? For and to some people, if you're not used to the, because you're like, oh, the conversations are going well. I'm going to the next phase, and so it took me a while. It took me. I mean, it probably took me into the second or third time I raised to understand when somebody was genuinely interested, and how to suss out who's serious and who's just you know shopping. And so I think that's important to learn too. That I think the the difference was uh, where I could find it, suss it out, is I really made them ask questions or come back to me on like what specifically they're concerned about or interested in the business or how they wanted to dive in further. And that usually helped me understand and validate interest. Because if the questions were good and very specific to me, then I knew that they'd been thinking about it. If they were kind of more like, this is the generic questions we ask everybody, I, mm -hmm. that was usually a good indicator to me. Yeah, and, and just to give you a Kubera perspective on that, if we're talking to people more than three meetings, we're typically interested, mm -hmm. but we don't always do the deal. And that's yeah. because the size of the fund, the type of investment, valuation, all those things do matter. But uh, aside from that, I'm curious, as your company has progressed, what are the big things you've gotten done company-wise that helped set you up from a C to Series A and Series A to Series B? And what insight could you give people there in terms of things to look at? One, a question I get asked a lot is, when should I bring in a CFO? When should I bring in a, a VP of sales right. or a chief yeah. revenue officer? I'm curious as to what you did and how you built your team to help you accomplish what you did. Yeah, and it, it's it changes at every stage, right? I mean, I think at seed stage, you guys, I mean, you're an investor, so you can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but the story I was telling at seed stage was really the sort of the big dream. You know, what's the narrative? What's the big dream? And then what are the indicators? What are the early, like, what are the customer pilots? What are the early signs of revenue? What are the indicators of momentum and genuine that we were really genuinely onto something? So I feel like that was sort of you know what the story is around. So you you really are about like what do you have in market? How much you know committed interest do you have? Contracts? Uh, what is it that they're interested about? How well do you understand the problem? And can you kind of describe what you do for these customers? And then what's where does that take you? What's the big dream? I think for our Series A, there was an expectation more of how good is the company getting at sort of improving the product and product cadence? So are we starting to build that out and build out more feature sets? How sticky is the product? We now have enough data to know, do our customers stay with us? Do they like it? Do they love it? Are they raving? Are they doing testimonials? Are they referring other people? Mm -hmm. And then what are the early indicators that we have a repeatable sales process? And I think on Series B, it's, can Robin hire people? Can Robin build a team? Is she starting to build a bigger organization and structure? Um, that's when we hired a CFO. I think for us, it might have been a little on the early side because we are a fintech company. So the financial side of it is super, super important. We're handling other people's money. But I think you know the, the story starts to change as you kind of get to each stage. Hey, I have a quick question from the, uh, from the uh, club seats here. Yeah. So in this in as much as you were given some evaluation of interest, I'm curious if you you have any other qualities that you kind of look for in an investor. Yeah, you know, I like to look at one, it's I mean, the individual that you're working with is super important and how how they can help you and how they can advise you and whether or not you're gonna, you know, they're gonna be with you through thick and thin. 
you are going to have some awful conversations and bad news you're gonna to have to deliver to your investors. Like, I, you know, I don't know of many CEOs who don't have that experience. And so getting a sense that who's gonna have your back and be supportive and give you advice and that is productive, I think is super important. And so it, I think it is important to understand what your personal relationship is like and what you can expect from your investors. And like also what kind of help you need. Different people need different types of help. So, you know, I some of the help that I was looking for is, you know, I've been a, a professional running and scaling businesses for quite some time, especially in fintech. So I didn't I didn't need a fintech. I didn't need necessarily fintech help, but I was in Atlanta and it was hard when I got started to raise capital outside of Atlanta. So I was looking for investors who were really good at helping me raise capital and helping me network and extend my network and were well, well respected and could connect me to either the New York or San Francisco capital markets where you know there's just a lot more capital available. So it just depends on what you need and you have to be thoughtful about it and it changes by stage of business. So if I was Scott Luton, I would have read that question before I put it up there, but I'm gonna do it now. So James Malley asks, are there any qualities you look for in an investor? So that's why I asked uh, Robin that question for those of you who are not on video and can't see it. I think the you know one of the other things you ha have to acknowledge and you have to discern in the process is, and I've told a number of investors this, both being on their side and, and the founder's side of the table, every investor has the same pitch. They're all former operators. They all have all these value-added teams and things like that. And they all essentially, as I've told many of them, your differentiators are precisely the same as all of your competitors. So how did you how did you discern that that those things that you looked for how did you discern that they were real instead of just you know, the kind of typical pitch you get in a meeting yeah you know i am shocked by how infrequently founders and ceos will reference check investors i mean you you have to do that i mean <laughs> yes <laughs> you know, just every I, i'm i'm very surprised um and i think i you know you got to do and then you know ask the investor for references and then you go find your own yeah. <laughs> and i you just have to do that because you're not going to find out otherwise yeah I, unless I, it's somebody who's you've really was well known I, 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 that's the first thing uh, i would do i i agree with that and, and i also think there's a a bit of matching. I, I think at the various stages you've raised, and you've probably seen this, there are those investors that are true builders and partners with you at that stage and will dig in and be an extension of your team and work with you to do what needs to get done in many ways. And then there's the next levels of growth and scalers that take you beyond where the builders can take you. And the DNAs are different. Right. And, and, and it's, it truly is a partnership and the way I would like to talk about is that you're setting, you're letting somebody into your family. They're going to sit at your dinner table and you don't want that unruly uncle like Greg to show up because, you know, who knows what Greg's going to say at the dinner table that day. Particularly that you build your business, yeah. whatever it is, I can guarantee you that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I, and I'm, you know, not, not a knock on multi-stage investors or anything, but like yeah. in the early stages, I'm sure you guys will like this advice. I do really love having dedicated seed or series A investors at that with you as, as kind of who you would pick. Cause they are more like with, they have smaller portfolios. They're more dependent on your success and you're just going to get more from them. And they're going to help you raise the next rounds because that's what they yeah. that's what they need to do. And I think the alignment of incentives is just much much better if you kind of find those folks. 
I mean, I know it's hard to turn down a really great brand name, multi-stage investor, but you know, if it, it, that can, that can go wrong and you're just going to get lots of help. And then I think the other thing I'd say to founders is like, be honest with yourself about whether or not you actually want help. So, you know, if you're, not, if you're just going to ignore, if you have a like, Hey, we want to help and get really involved early stage investor and you just don't, you're just not open to it, then that's not going right. to be very productive. Great. Great advice. Yeah. That's a big, that's a big, big part of it is, is I think it's really difficult to, conceive how complex this process is because you could have someone like Kubera who is a perfect fit, who really wants to and can help. But if you don't fit the investment thesis, right, then you could go three, four meetings and realize that there's not a deal there. And it's equally as frustrating for the investor as it is for the founder and the team. But that, I mean, that is why a hundred contacts is necessary. It's not just because someone can or even wants to or will say yes. It's you need the right fit in so many ways to say yes, right? If you don't, if all you want is a check, then you just need to be honest with yourself and and acknowledge that I don't really care about or specifically, as you said, want someone helping me. I know what to do. Yeah, that feels like a dangerous path having been a founder and an investor. But I mean, there are some people really experienced founders who they may not want or even need that help. Right. You have to be very, very introspective as well. You have to understand if you really should have the help, even if you don't want it. Yeah. You know, some of those things. As you started to go into this, having come off two previous rounds, that's obviously very helpful. And, but, but how did you prepare for this round? I mean, how did you get the team prepped, the pitch prepped, yeah. you know, the, uh, grease the skids in terms of relationships with potential investors, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, ideally you're pitching to people that you've been checking in with quarterly or regularly and you are, you know, you're, you don't have to start from scratch. So, um, and you know, some of those people are people I'd pitched in earlier rounds. Some were people that I'd kind of gotten connected to subsequent, you know, so probably six months in advance, you ought to be having some conversations with people just to be able to suss out who your high priority people are. So I'd I'd done that. We, we did this during the, during the pandemic. I did not do a single investor meeting in person. And so we had to do it all over zoom. And I think, which was, which was crazy. Um, it, when it felt very different, it just, it allows you to sort of come like get your, uh, fundraising process be really, really compact and fast. And so you can kind of iterate really, really, really quickly and have a bunch of meetings one on top of the other and, and, and be pretty time efficient. I need to practice. I'm one of these people that need to practice a lot. I tend to get to like, uh, you know, operating, let me tell you about all the stuff we built and what we just did. And, you know, and so to kind of get Here's me how on, the money goes through. Yeah. yeah, I just, I get, I get like that. So like I need to practice and so, sort of, so I'm staying on the story and kind of making sure that I have the right energy and all, like, so I've definitely, I had to practice a ton. I recorded myself. I practiced in front of my kids who were really mean. And that was, productive you know so it was just I you know practice the pitch have a really uh really sort of structured pitch and then I also had a totally ready to go kind of light diligence 
analysis ready. So everything was ready. So, you know, for us at our stage, you do things like cohort analysis, you know, sales analysis. There's just some mm. stuff that investors want to do. We had everything, the data ready, the financials ready, little pack ready to go. So if we had an investor who was super interested, we could move quickly and we sort of remove some of the work for them. Robin, and one of the things I've noticed with my peers in the investment space is that particularly during the pandemic and probably even moving forward, a lot of this, because Zoom has been so tremendously helpful from an efficiency standpoint, is how much did the product demo matter? Because I, I, I find myself more focused on the demo and how well the product flowed and the customer mm -hmm. experience and I was able to dig into a lot more earlier on because of that. How much of that played into your pitch during the pandemic and, and helped you get to where you were? I think it's it's certainly important. I think we were late enough though. What was more important was our metrics and our sales meet our sale. That's a very funny comment, by the way. We were more focused on sort of metrics and sales momentum and and sort of more of how the business was performing and sort of the early signs of of results and traction and momentum. But I think it was important. I just, you know, I think it would have been way, way, way more important in the earlier stages. So practice thing, I think, is really key. I mean, you say it jokingly, your kids were pretty hard on you. But, you know, my experience has been those that love you the most beat you about the face and neck mm -hmm. in the most appropriate way, right? I mean, if, mm -hmm. if I want, and I do often, if I want an opinion, I go to Bology and I know that I'm going to get it. Or, yep. you know, go to my, my buddies and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. And they're, you know, they will undoubtedly say, boring. I don't get it. You know, the truth is because investors do talk to 10 or a dozen companies a day that you have, they have, you have very little opportunity to get their attention right. and you have to be concise and you have to be on point to do that. And that's not unlike speaking to someone who doesn't know the industry at all, or doesn't know investing at all, doesn't know your company or your story at all, because you know, it's kind of like a cocktail party. You know, when you describe what you do to your friends, it's totally different than the way many people try to describe it when they're in their marketing. Yeah. You know, when they're developing their marketing messaging. So it helps to have people who have that blessing of naivete because as an investor, you're only dialed in looking for kind of bullet points, not consciously, sometimes just subconsciously. And, and when those bullet points hit, then you really dial in and start to dig deeper. So that yeah. practice is really critical. It is. And I think it's even more important when you're doing it over Zoom because you, you know, I think Zoom flattens you a little bit, flattens your tone, flattens, you know, you just become less complex and interesting as a human. You don't have the pregame chit chat, you know, while you're kind of all getting settled and sitting around the room. So like, you gotta like, bring it. You got to be ready to have like great energy, super crisp presentation. And that takes a lot of work to do. And, and so that I think was super important. And the other thing that I did was um, I always had another member of my team on the call and that we, so we could see, cause the other thing you don't get to see is the, the feedback, right? right. What the faces look like you're, it's really hard to sort of read the room when you're, you're doing a pitch over zoom. And so to have somebody else who's like scrutinizing the little zoom squares and figuring out what the facial expressions are and sort yeah. of remembers the questions and all of that is, was absolutely critical. I don't know that we could have 
we can't iterate and get better. It's just, I think it's just a, it's a harder, I think it's a harder environment to get that feedback and to kind of, you know, I don't know, just to, to sort of be, to bring your best version of yourself over Zoom. In the end, did you like it better than? Oh my gosh, I, I did. Oh gosh, I hated like driving around Sand Hill Row and <laughs> you know. Oh, the, well, easy. Nice out here. <laughs> but the road, you just hated the road. I it's just hated the road. And windy. I mean, you know, I was just super, it's super inefficient. You know, you got some people in downtown San Francisco, some people out scheduling everything. It just took so long. And, you know, you try to plan it all around a trip. And I, I'm, I loved doing it over Zoom. The efficiency was, was fantastic. It just, you know, you kind of had to realize in what ways did it kind of, not cripple you, but what, where, where is it going to sort of make it harder to sort of function and have a really good, a really good pitch? I, I think that's a, this, there's a mixed bag. I, I know a lot of investors that have found it difficult to make investments virtually because they're so used to meeting the entrepreneur because yeah. it gave them a data points and a sense of the company, of the founders. And many people have had to adjust on the investor side to doing the same thing because it's it's been difficult for them because they're used to people coming to them many yeah. times. Yeah. And, and, and this is a whole new paradigm where they can see a lot more companies, but they have to find the same type of cues. They have to understand they're doing the same analysis on their end, to try to figure out is this the right investment, the right team? And many times, with particular backgrounds, company can look huge versus you know being in somebody's garage. And so right. there's always a, a bit of consternation around that as well. So I think it goes, it cuts both ways. And I think hopefully the future is someplace in the middle where we find some efficiency as well as get back a little bit of face-to-face. -face. But if you can stack your meetings, I think that's better for everybody. Yes. Well, it's easier to manage a process, right? You don't end up... I think some of the things I see, especially early stage founders do is they'll like, they're like, I had five great conversations this week. And I'm like, okay, well, you gotta, you gotta probably gotta do 50. Like, yeah. can, can we, can we, like being linear about it just prolongs your fundraise process, which means there's more time that you're embroiled in it. And it's not a time you're not spent manage, actively managing the business. So being able to be efficient and really compact about it, I think is just good for everybody. So in playing out the future, Robin, given the fact that the world is getting even more distributed in terms of teams yep. and in the fact that we look at future work as part of our thesis, we're very interested in how companies of your size and stage are looking at how do you grow your team on a national global level? Are, are you going to, is distributed workforce in nature of the beast? Are you trying to bring that brain trust to you ideally? What is the mix from your perspective? Well, first of all, I'm very lucky that we are based in Atlanta, which is a fantastic town for fintech and logistics talent. So we we very much view Atlanta our home. Um, we believe to be competitive, we need to provide flexibility about where people work and allow people to not spend five days a week in, in the office. That's just not, that doesn't sell. But in for certain roles, we're also more open to having them be in other markets and other geographic markets, particularly engineering roles. But for the most part, we really want people here. And so it's here with flexibility. We will opportunistically hire some folks in other markets, but you know, you just can't. The times we've gotten the team together, uh, we've gotten a chance to do it a little bit. We're partially back in the office with mainly with our sales organization. And the energy is amazing. Like it's just 
you can't replicate that, I think, over just Zoom and, and having a remote workforce. And I also think like the business is going to lean one way or the other. And so having us be primarily in person with uh, lots of flexibility is probably the right model for us. And I think you're going to see businesses sort of pick one or the other. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we want to, we're looking, working on moving fast. We want to have a fun culture. We want it to, you know, this to really be sort of, and, and we're all learning and, and that we have a relatively, especially for our sales team, you know, two to five years of work experience. It's just much easier to, to kind of do some of that if you're, you're in person. I think it, I think it's interesting that I, what I've seen is strong leaders like you taking that balanced approach so many years back when it was open office or, or nothing. <clears throat> I think I saw so many companies go that way because of fashion. And mm -hmm. instead you really have to, like you have done, you have to understand that dynamic. Sure. You need a dark part of the office for the right. Right. Definitely. It's like a cage for the developers. That's where they prefer to be. Anyway, you need another dark part of the office where things can fly around the room for the marketing people. And then you need a well lit and quiet part of the office for the accounting department. And, you know, and it's similar in terms of how you domicile people for, for their roles. And, you know, frankly, we're in a market where I think we can all confess it is definitely a candidate's market right now. Right. So you have to be more flexible, but I'm a huge believer. And I think having seen it, I have visited, we talked about our, our buddy, Paul Noble. I have visited his corporate office and I've visited the corporate office at, at Flourish, both here in Atlanta as well. And the energy and the opportunity for interchange that really up levels the business is unmatched in yeah. a virtual environment. So, yeah. so um, just a couple more things that b before we wrap up here, but I want to talk about frothiness. So for anyone who's not familiar, if you're in, if you are in the startup industry or you are an investor, the key word of the month is, or last few months is frothy. Is it not B? Yeah. It, it, frothy is the term you typically see the insiders use. I think uh, another term is unrealized exuberance. There's a lot of exuberance. Yes. And that that's uh, not necessarily based on fundamentals of many decisions. And that leads to that term frothiness. And, uh, yeah. and then that, that's partly due to the fact that there's a lot of money about looking for a place to land. And, yeah. and, and in, uh, in markets where money is cheap and it's used to stimulate the economy, these things tend to happen across many areas, not only startup investment, but if any of you that own homes or thinking about selling know that the price of your home has gone up considerably, right? And there's a, uh, it also comes into play in many other industries when money's cheap. Yeah. And, and, you know, arguably we're in a kind of an everything bubble and, and frothiness, frankly, is a dual edged sword because investors who want to you know, have FOMO, fear of missing out, they want to get in on good deals in hot spaces like supply chain and fintech. But at the same time, to kind of temper the fancy of, of our of our um, audience here, you had better be performing really, really well, because while there are a lot of deals out there, I think investors have started to have their eyes looking forward for when the market starts to retreat a little bit. And they are starting to look at the, you know, the most 
well, the best deals out there, those really fast growing companies with good teams and good products and good market positioning and a good moat. So I'm curious what you saw in regard to that, because you are in two markets that are frothy without yeah. argument, right? Both yeah. and supply chain. First of all, I'll start off with my investors got a spectacular deal because we, you know, are amazing and whatever they paid is we're going to blow it out of the water. So, um, so, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, like a true diplomat. Very so, well done, Rob. So, um, I think the heart, so and I think you sort of alluded to this. Not everyone experiences the froth. And I think, um, you know, just I want to feel the founders out there that are like, where the heck is all this money? Because I can't find it. Like, it's not it's it's a relatively limited set of folks that are experiencing this, you know, what people are calling frothy market and over exuberant market. It is gravitating to people with certain backgrounds and experiences and, and uh, businesses with certain profiles. And so, you know, for some folks, it's business as usual, right? Trying to find, uh, trying to find capital, um, and so that, and that, so the story around frothiness is intensely uh, frustrating, and you know can be a little bit demotivating. But it, you know, just want that's not the, that's not everybody's experience, right? So it's a kind of an yeah. abnormal experience to experience the froth. What what does happen, especially if you're in hot markets, is this thing that I talked about at the very beginning, which is everyone will look. Right. You know, you end up with and, and I, I had this experience in the beginning, too. Like for me, you know, I am a woman who came out of, you know, a really well-known, uh, successful commercial payments company in a hot market in logistics and fintech. And, and so, you know, everyone would have a conversation. And a mm -hmm. lot of those conversations were just interested and in, interest in the space and all this other stuff. And it wasn't actually interest in, in our business or they weren't going to invest. And so I do think the frothiness can be dis a disadvantage to some investors, not investors, to some, uh, to some founders, because, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not really, it's just, Hey, I got to look at everything now. And you're not, you know, you're not getting the weeding out and sort of the qualified interest that you would get in a different market. Yeah, I, I would just just to play on the frothiness of it a little bit. I, I think one of the the challenges with entrepreneurs, particularly at early stage, is that they see the success of of other companies that look similar, and they 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 believe their valuation should be in the same ballpark. Whereas no two companies are necessarily alike. And there's to your point, there's a lot of facets that get looked at in terms of the team, the experience, the domain expertise. The product, the traction, the stickiness, all the things we look at in right. terms of trying to evaluate a company. And, and that can be frustrating because from the outside, like we look just like them. Why don't why aren't we getting the money? But the reality is there's a lot more to unpack. And, and if you become valuation focused, particularly at the early stage, I think you're doing yourself a bit of a disservice yep. versus just continuing to build and, and finding that success. Yeah. And I think the thing that some people need to understand, too, is like sometimes people get irrational offers. Right? Right. I mean, you may they may get some they may fall into a, a pot of money and evaluation that they just hit the right person at the right time. They, you know, an investor lost the previous deal and really feels like they need this deal. I mean, who knows? There could be all these yeah. it's, it's sort of L magic to it. Luck and timing is a big part of all right. this. Right. right? Right. It's not like there's some mathematical formula to what you're going to get. So it, it could even be for reasons that are not really uh, 
justified on business fundamentals or business quality or anything like that. You just never know. And so you can't get wrapped around the axle for the, you know, your business is worth what someone's willing to pay for it. That's right. So, so the, the, that being said, Robin, and again, another question I, I have a lot with founders and, and startup uh, people are how much should I raise and, and uh, what's the right amount of money to take in? What's too much? What's too little? How do we determine what the right, amount of money is what are your thoughts on that because obviously you guys have raised a tremendous round and i'm sure there's rationale behind that but you know what insight could you give people as they try to figure out what is the right amount of money to raise right now yeah i mean i think that it's you know it's what you think you can productively deploy and really have a good thesis on you know I can spend this money wisely and get them hit the milestones and the metrics that I've put in front of the investors. Um, and you shouldn't raise much more than that. Um, I think people, especially in the earlier stages, I, I would recommend being a little bit more conservative about what you raise when you're really early, early, early. Um, but, um, you know, I think, you know, if you do see some of these bigger rounds. I mean, the reality is in some of the bigger rounds, like you kind of have sizes that you just have to, you know, you're not going to get a top tier investor if you're raising a $5 million series B, right? So you're just kind of stuck with certain, certain amounts of money and cause you, at, at certain type periods of time in your growth cycle. And, you know, you need to know as, as the CEO or founder that, that you can productively deploy it. And so that's how much you should raise. Otherwise don't play that game. Yeah. The, the, this is going to sound counterintuitive, but the last thing you want to do is raise too much money. Right. And, too much money is defined by giving everyone a car as a sign-on bonus to the company. I mean, that's an extreme example, but the truth is you need to be able to have a sound plan to know how you're going to deploy those funds. I, we have this discussion frequently, you know, how much is enough, how much is too much. Rarely does anyone, have I, do I talk to a founder who thinks they've ra- they are asking for too much money for their round? The other thing I think that companies have to, and you're at a stage, Robin, where this rarely happens, but we see it frequently with seed stage companies, is is you're not raising for um, you're not raising for timeline, right? This doesn't it's not runway that you're raising for. You're raising for milestones and accomplishments and levels of growth in your team, in your company, in your business model. You're not raising to survive the next eighteen months. Um, Personally, that's that is a pet peeve of mine. So, so let's talk about that now that you've raised this money, right? We know, as Balaji asked, you had a great plan for how you know what to do. It it probably feels like a lot of people looking in from the outside that you've made it. You're done. You're good. You're you're ready to go <laughs> now, though, right? The hard right. work starts. So, so tell us a little bit about you know, where you go from here now that you've raised and closed this round and that money has hit the balance sheet? Yeah, I mean, so uh, we're very much focused on um, sales expansion. So just dramatically in, you know, increasing how much uh, our, how big our sales team is and how we are deploying salespeople against the market. So a lot of the money is being spent on that. And as we grow, that means we need more tools, more sales structure, more inbound lead generation. So there's people associated with that as well. Um, And then the other big area of growth for us is more product. Um, You know, I think the use cases that we serve are 
slightly different depending on who we're talking to. And it requires a really smart and effective multi-product uh, team. And, and so really kind of getting us organized around that is, is sort of the second area of growth for us. And then I guess finally just continued investment in partnerships. You, so you will probably address with this funding, I'm certain it sounds like you certainly are cognizant of that, addressing some of the things to go all the way back to the beginning of what the investors did like, you'll accelerate that. And some of the mm -hmm. things the investors didn't like, you'll shore that up, right? That's right. Yep. Uh, and I think that's a really foundationally sound way to approach this. So um, there are a lot of other things that, you know, that are details in these things, but ultimately you have built the sales flywheel as everybody loves to call it. Mm -hmm. You've proven yeah. that you can get to market. You've proven you've got a sound product. You've got good customer momentum and, and retention there. Now you just have to accelerate and grow all of those things. Uh, just, did I say just? You oh, did say just, and it's, you know, harder. Executing is harder than it looks. So, uh, so I want to give Balaji a quick chance to kind of some final words and then, Robin, I'd love to just get some final words or takeaways or whatever you think people yeah. ought, to, ought to have heard here. So be, go for it. I, I, I think Robin and Roadsink are a, a great case study in the evolution of a company in terms of going, getting from seed to Series B and doing so you know, methodically and, and with purpose and a plan. And, and I think it's a, it's a great model for people to consider uh, in, in terms of when Robin came into the business, the vision she has, how she's directed the team. I think all those things are important and you need to kind of build some of that domain expertise as you're kind of unpacking and unwrapping your opportunity to get to where they are. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think a lot of the key points that she made are, are relevant at any stage, right? I'll always do your homework, find the right investor, focus on the right things in terms of where you are, in terms of market traction, be honest about what you need and don't need. Because there are people that want to help, uh, like us and, and, and others in the early stage markets. But if you don't want that help, you know, find different sources of, of uh, investment. Because professional investors want to get engaged and they and want to be part of this in some way, shape, or form. That's what they do. That's what they live for. And uh, but I mean, again, kudos to Robin and the Roadsing team. I think they've done a tremendous job, and I look forward to seeing the, the future. All right, Robin, it's almost time to get you on the back on the other side of the desk here, but yeah. share so, what you'd just like folks to take away from this. Yeah, I guess. So, I mean, I think Biology did a great job sort of recapping some of the things that I said throughout the conversation, but I'll just add something that I didn't talk about, which is um, I, I wish that folks could figure out a way and sort of hope for folks that they can figure out a way to make this fun. Um, you are getting to talk when you're in a fundraise process, you're getting to talk to really curious, smart people about your business. And you love your business and you love to talk about your business. So try to figure out a way to have fun with the conversations and just understand it's a numbers game and a sales process and you're gonna get lots and lots and lots and lots of no's. So figure out a way to have interesting conversations with people that are kind of, that are fun and interesting. Maybe you can find out something about the market, about you know similar businesses that have, and you know get ideas. Like I, I, I felt like the best I did was when I sort of, figured out a way to enjoy the process. 
I mean, I could totally enjoy it, but you know, just figure out to take something positive. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's spot on. And 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 you know, I'll add on to that just as cap it. Is just many times we don't make the investment, but we like the investor and still want to help. Right? It, it sometimes yeah. it just doesn't fit the fund's thesis in terms of valuation, ownership, a lot of things. But doesn't mean we don't like the business or the founders, and we still try to find ways to help. And I think a lot of people are of the same mind if they're having fun with you along the way to Robin's point. I think, well, so we have to wrap pretty quick because Robin has a day job, Balaji, but so I will keep this short. And that is, I think it's a lot easier to have fun when you're as prepared and sound fundamentally as Robin is when you have prepared your backup documents, your presentation, when you practiced it, you know, the best way to sound unrehearsed in, in any presentation or discussion is to know your presentation or discussion inside out. So the only way to sound unrehearsed is to be completely rehearsed. That gives you the ability to have fun and, and be a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more off the cuff. So uh, let me, before you expire, Robin, because I want all of us to leave at the same time this time, thank you for joining us. Thank you for being on that side of the table. We welcome you back to being a judge next month and uh, congratulations again on your funding and on the you know forthcoming additional acceleration of road sync you're doing a great job there and and i think you're fantastic um you're a fantastic example of the kind of leaders we need in in supply chain and in tech so thank you apology yeah. um, always a pleasure thank you for your time um thank you for your insights um look we wouldn't be doing this None of us would be doing this if it weren't for you. So I really appreciate you um, getting me on that side of the table, on the venture side of the table, and uh, appreciate your insights as always. Always having fun, Greg, number one. And thank you. And of course, to all of you out there and to the whole Supply Chain Now team, thanks for joining us. And Scott, thanks for giving us this platform. I think this is valuable information for the marketplace. Um, you know, we have a ton of other shows at Supply Chain Now. And of course, Tequila Sunrise, we did drop another podcast and vlog episode with Shannon Valancourt, CEO of RateLinks. We need to introduce you to him, Robin. Um, and of course, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from or on YouTube. And remember this one final thing. Acknowledge reality, but never be bound by it. Thank you. Tequila Sunrise is part of the Supply Chain Now Network, the voice of supply chain featuring the people, technologies, best practices, and key issues in the industry. And hey, listen up. To build your supply chain knowledge, listen to, get this, Supply Chain is Boring, where Chris Barnes connects you to the who's who that got supply chain where we are, point us to where we're going, take us to the next level or check out this week in business history with supply chain now's own scott luton to learn more about everyday things you may take for granted and pick up quick insights you can use as inspiration and conversation starters our logistics with purpose series puts a spotlight on inspiring and successful organizations that give first give forward as their business model if you're interested in transportation, freight, and logistics, have a listen to the Logistics and Beyond series with the Adapt and Thrive Mindset Sherpa, Jamin Alvidrez, and also check out Tech Talk, hosted by industry vet and Atlanta's own Corinne Bursa.
Supply Chain Pro to Know of 2020, where Corinne discusses the people, processes, and technology of digital supply chain. For sponsorship information on Tequila Sunrise or any Supply Chain Now show, DM me on Twitter or Instagram at Gregory S. White or email me at greg at supplychainnow.com. Thanks again for spending your time with me and remember, acknowledge reality, but never be bound by it.